Welcome to Patriots of the Core. I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. He was angered by the attacks on 9-11, so he joined the military to help rid the world of terrorists. On September 29, 2010, he was killed on his first deployment. From his death notification to the dignified transfer ceremony, his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of warriors we met. These patriots have become close to our family and been huge supports. They stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil. They believed in freedom. Because of their actions, I started this podcast to interview great Americans who serve their country and communities. Thank you for tuning in. So, Joe, you were one of the early guys in Afghanistan. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, so you were there. Tell me, Tell well, I guess first of all, let's set the stage because I want to get to this, what all you did over a period of days, but when did you get there and why were you at least initially there? Certainly. So we're going to go all the way back to 2001 on September 11th when we were all at the team room, roughly 9 a.m. Eastern time, uh, when the first plane struck uh, the tower. And uh, we were out for a jog and uh, one of the PJs grabbed a, a team vehicle and flagged us all down. And we went back to the team room looking at the TV, perplexed, like, how could this happen? Because as a controller, uh, combat controller, we're all air traffic controllers first. You're right. That was our bread and butter, all FAA trained air traffic controllers. So we're we're just questioning how could this have happened as the second plane impacts the second building. And then we knew for sure that uh, this was a terrorist act, that this was deliberate. And then we knew uh, very quickly we'd be on our way somewhere. Uh, so we were uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as part of the Joint Special Operations Command, my squadron, the 24th Special Tactics Squadron. But the other squadrons as well uh, across the country and world were probably also getting ready uh, simultaneous as well. You know, we had a, a counterterrorism mission uh, that we were uh, bred and trained for. And so we were we knew that we would uh, be getting over quickly. So to answer your question, uh, from September 11th, uh, we had boots on the ground prior to October 19th. But October 19th of 2001 is probably probably the good start date. That was the, the first date of our airborne operations. Uh, then on your previous podcast with Mike LaMonica and Kyle Stanbro, uh, you, ta- you talked about uh, their airborne mission into Mullah Omar's compound. Uh, at the same time, my team was inserting into the uh, Panjir Valley of northern Afghanistan as part of the Northern Alliance team linking up with the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. So at this time, well, let's see, September 11th, were you clean shaven? Oh, uh, yes. At the time, at the time we were. And so on any given day, we were in a variety of conditions. And so we had three squadrons and we were uh, paired as uh, a, a sister uh, team across Rangers, SEALs, and uh, the most elite Army Special Forces team. And so we would either be in a pre-alert, an alert, or a, a component training cycle. So depending on those, uh, we would be prepared for you know a variety of, of actions. At the time, I was on a team that was known as Advanced Force Operations. We called it AFO at the time. It has a different moniker now. And the AFO team, is, the idea is to get there early to set the conditions for follow-on forces to do the business. And those follow-on forces could be a variety of things. And like... Mike LaMonica had spoken about uh, in that podcast from a couple of years ago is that uh, that they jumped in first, were ready to receive uh, receive the airplanes and the remainder of the troops. And so there's always somebody probably, you know, early there, you know, taking a peek, uh, which goes all the way back to Coach Carney when he set the conditions for the Desert One landing uh, back in uh, Iran in the, in the late 1979, early 1980. Okay. So by the time you got to country, and this is, I know this is kind of simple questions to most, but sure. to me, it's little things that I'm curious about. By the time October 19th comes around, did you have facial hair? Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we, the second that we knew that we were going to get tasked, we just started to grow our beards out. Uh, okay. Cause that's uh, right. And the reason that is, I mean, on one hand, it's cool. Uh, my unit had relaxed grooming standards anyway. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I've got a picture um, when, uh, you know, post event, when we, uh, received the vice president at our compound and, you know, my hair was very long and I had a pretty uh, shaggy mustache and my commander was like, Joe, you got to do something with that. And I'm like, sir, I can, I'm getting ready to go. I'm going back over for another, you know, who, yeah. So yes, we, we had relaxed grooming standards, which means we didn't typically wear a military uniform. Our hair was definitely over our ears. We uh, had, ex- you know, our beards, uh, not so much beards, but mustaches were, you know, out of regs. 
but then we started to grow our beards because we knew that the people that we were going to be meeting with the Northern Alliance culturally uh, having a beard is is that's what men do there. And we wanted to make sure that uh, when they first met us, that uh, we were on equal footing. And then once you were in country, what kind of clothes did you wear at that time? So interesting piece for my team, uh, and we'll get to our, our mission set and why we were there initially, is we wore civilian clothes because we were chopped over to the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. So at this point, uh, there's a there's a way to do business where, you know, the CIA was was already forward. They were already making liaison. As a matter of fact, they never stopped with the liaison mission, even after we had left Afghanistan when we were supporting them when they were fighting the Soviets in the 80s. Uh, so the Soviets in, in, had invaded Afghanistan and stayed there for quite a few years. And we had an effort, the United States, to 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 feed the Northern Alliance. And so our um, our group uh, all wore civilian clothes uh, with no military markings. OK, as a matter of fact, we carried AK-47s instead of this uh, the traditional uh, M-16 or M-4 type of rifle. Why was that? Uh, just so we could blend in better. Huh. Okay. Yeah, we wore their we wore their garb, we wore their hats, uh, we wore their you know neckerchiefs, and uh, you know carried their guns. Why were you there? Was your mission changed? And and, and what happened? Because I know there was a there was a situation with some missionaries, and, and, and I'm gonna throw this out there. This may not even have anything to do with you with you, but you had the American trader John Walker Lynn that was that was and and then American CIA. Um, uh, Johnny Michael Spann, who who I've yep. had his dad on the show for two yes, episodes, sir. who's from near my area. So, where were you in relation to them, and were you part of any of those activities at all, or were you completely separate? Yeah, so you can imagine there's a lot of things going on simultaneously, and there were several agency teams that are, were doing a variety of missions. And so, you had already interviewed Will Markham. Will Markham was uh, one of the combat controls initially that was uh, tasked with special forces group to break the Taliban's back. And so they were on a line north of Bagram Airfield. Bagram uh, became the main uh, air base. It was the main Soviet air base. It became the main U.S. air base as well. So part of the team uh, was supporting those types of mission. The other team was, so the idea of, once we made friends with the Northern Alliance, we were quickly trying to sort out. Remember, the whole reason we were there was to, to locate Al-Qaeda. And so some some folks um, may may or may not understand this, but we were really on the hunt for Arabs. Al-Qaeda, it comes from mainly the Arab countries. We weren't hunting for the Taliban. It just so happens that the Taliban was providing uh, safe comfort or or they were allowing Al-Qaeda operate out of their area. And so for us to to get to the business we wanted to do, we had to break the Taliban's back. And that's where Will Markham uh, came into play. Uh, Johnny Spann and his team, also part of a jawbreaker element that was different than mine. Uh, mine was Jawbreaker Juliet. That was a different jawbreaker team. And that was the call sign for the uh, for the agency teams. Uh, they had got intel about this prison and the uh, the Northern Alliance had captured a lot of uh a lot of uh, Taliban who uh, didn't want to surrender. And an interesting thing on, when in the in their culture is that they're all cousins. And so if you're a Taliban member and the Northern Alliance gets the advantage and wins the day, then you're allowed to transfer over. You could just say, hey, I forsake the Taliban. I want to be in the Northern Alliance. And just like that, they are Northern Alliance members. Now, they're asked to shave their beards. So it's typically hand, uh, hand length on the beards. And so they would have them have them cut their beards and they would go from wearing black hats to wearing uh, brown hats. I mean, that's as simple as it is. So at that prison uh, where they had uh, got intel about an American, that's where the John Walker Lynn piece came in, you know, a, uh, an Amer a misguided uh, young American that ended up getting, you know, caught up in, in, uh, in the Taliban uh, lore and uh, ended up getting captured. And then that whole, that whole piece um, where there was only a couple of Americans, uh, which a large element of Afghans to support them. And then that situation just got out of control very quickly. But I was, I was North and East of that at, at the, at our initial, at our initial start. And that's really all I could say about that. I was aware that it happened uh, because we were, uh, you know, receiving CIA cable traffic and we understood that something was going on over there. And so they mobilized forces over there to go quell that uprising. So then what was yeah. your mission? And, and, did it get changed or was it 
was the Certainly. same all along. So when we when we initially departed the U.S., so we had a six person team and we split up into two three person groups. Were these all uh, Air Force? No, uh, this is uh, two Air Force guys attached to uh, an, an advanced force operations team from Delta. Okay. And so our mission was to go into Afghanistan and to locate and rescue the Shelter Now International Christian Missionaries, which were eight missionaries. And as I recall, uh, two Americans, uh, two Australians, and four Germans. And so to me, uh, these are the Delta Force of Christian missionaries, right? So you've uh, you've done some mission work, uh, Thad, I've read. Yeah. And so imagine that your mission is going to be in China or North Korea or Afghanistan. I mean, it's just, it sounds ludicrous to me, but when you're led, when you have yeah. the calling, you know, you go where you're, you go where you're sent and they were sent uh, to the Taliban stronghold of Afghanistan. Wow. Okay. So they, they got captured, but thankfully uh, the Taliban uh, for, for whatever reason decided not to martyr them and then kept them together. And they were, had they been there by the way, since before nine 11? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. So they had been there and they had been receiving red crescent visits. That's like our red cross. And so I, I think that there was some, you know, the, uh, the Afghan culture is, is uh, rich with uh, trading. And I think the idea was to trade these hostages for, for riches. And so that's why they kept them going. Um, so there's a book, um, um, written uh, by Dana Curry and Heather Mercer, the two Americans uh, entitled Prisoners of Hope, uh, where they described their circumstances. And so we were, uh, our mission was to to locate them. And at the time we thought they were in Kabul, but at this point we're in the Panjir Valley of Northern Afghanistan, just across the border from Tajikistan. And we were uh, aligned with the Northern Alliance intelligence teams and in our, uh, our chief of base from the CIA and our uh, our mission initially was to locate them, but then uh, quickly, as we were paying paying mind to the battlefield, we realized that the fight against the Taliban uh, with Will Markham, and as soon as they fell, that that opened the door to to Bagram uh, Air Base, and we were quickly scrambled to then leave the Panjshir Valley and drive south, and then occupy uh, Bagram uh, Airfield, which we did uh, immediately, and so we were the the first American boots on the ground at Bagram, uh, the first night that uh, that it was open. So that was that was pretty interesting. This is so now we're still uh, collecting uh, information. So some very interesting things is that the Northern Alliance would have regular conversations with the Taliban. You know, it's no different than you know you talking to a family member and then you're not on the best of terms, but you still you know uh, trade greetings with them. And so the Northern Alliance was collecting intel from the Taliban and. And so uh, the the idea was, can we continue to push the Northern Alliance, can, Northern Alliance continue to push and then and then take Kabul quickly? So I think in the in the um, Washington, D.C. circles, they thought it would take a long time for all of this uh, for for the Taliban to capitulate. But things started happening very rapidly. And we as just as quickly as we had got to Bagram, just as quickly uh, we got into Kabul. Um, almost a couple of days later. And then uh, it was, it was honestly the wild west. Uh, maybe the only person uh, that was in Kabul quicker than, than us, or, or we might've beat her, but was Christian Amanpour, the uh, CNN correspondent. And so she was running around with the team as well. So it was, it was really the wild west. It was Taliban that weren't sure what to do. U.S. forces that were starting to, you know, seize the initiative there. Um, you know, politically we were interested in opening up our uh, embassy that had been closed since, uh, you know, since the Soviets uh, had been defeated and the Taliban took over. And so a lot of dynamics going on, Wild West, where it's just, you're just, you know, making eye contact with people and just, you know, trying to figure out their motives while you're trying to, you know, to get to your business at hand. You know, and our business was uh, me from a uh, from Air Force Combat Controller point of view was to quickly uh, assess the Kabul uh, airport and airfield. So we could talk uh, talk to our forces about whether they could use that uh, air base to also land airplanes in. Uh, Jim, well, how did you assess Earth. it? Were you checking the quality of the runway? Yes. So, so, so the idea is that uh, is that we want to make sure that it's it's capable of receiving any any types of aircraft. And so, some of our tactical air, aircraft can land in all sorts of conditions: uh, very short runways uh, at night, 
where commercial airliners need lights and they need the entire runway. And so uh, my job was to figure out very quickly whether we could use the entire airfield or parts of it and then send the send that information back to uh, the combined air operations center so they could start to plan to you know bring in in supplies that would support the agency and then follow on your u.s forces was it a paved airstrip yeah so yeah uh, completely concrete the issue was is that the u.s had decided to bunker two pieces of the of the airfield using uh you know penetration bombs to destroy big pieces so that uh there was gravel all over, you know, not something that couldn't have been cleaned up very quickly. Uh, but the idea is that the the airport was closed to uh, commercial traffic until we could get uh, folks in there that could recreate that concrete. Oh, okay. To the same standard uh, load bearing capacity uh, that it was designed. Yep. So at that point, uh, we're in Kabul. This is uh, this is roughly got into the Panjshir Valley, you know, around October nineteenth. Uh, we're into November. We're uh, starting to get the lay of the land, and, and we start to hear about um, the Northern Alliance is uh, is using their network to to figure out kind of the ground situation for us, the enemy order of battle, as we say. Understand what the bad guys are up to. When we uh, find out that the Taliban um, had given up and become Northern Alliance, but all those Arabs that we were talking about. All of them were captured. So those were the people that were at the prison where uh, where Johnny Span uh, was at, and then they were also in a prison in Kabul, a uh, you know held in a jail. And so uh, some of our folks went and interviewed them and uh, just asked them some questions about what was going on. And that's when we first got our tipper on Osama bin Laden uh, still being in Afghanistan. So uh, we got uh, information that he was located in a place called Tora Bora. We didn't know what that was at the time, uh, but uh, turns out, uh, you know, it took us a while to locate where that was. Did some more uh, interviews uh, with the locals, but we found out that it was on the uh, farther south and east of us, almost on the Pakistani border. So from Kabul, you know, just about, uh, you know, due south, southeast was an area of, of called Tora Bora. What we didn't know at the time is that is where they had set up uh, when the Soviet occupation had occurred uh, and some of these same um Al-Qaeda fighters uh, were, you know, freedom fighters, as they were described back then. And they were the ones that were receiving U.S. weapons to stop the Soviets and to get the Soviets to quit Afghanistan. And so the Soviets uh, chased them towards the Tora Bora Mountains, but never had the combat power to get that done. And so they thought um, by their own testimony that we found out later is that they thought that they were completely safe in these mountains of Tora Bora. Uh, but, you know, we were fresh in mind that September 11th just happened and, and we were definitely looking to uh, route out the people that had uh, conducted those operations. And so that, so this was uh, hot and heavy in our minds. I mean, it was uh, less than, you know, two months later uh, that we were, you know, approaching Tora Bora. So what was your plan then? So a good, good question. And so we pushed out to a, a town called Jalalabad, which was the closest location. And they had some houses back in the day. Uh, surprisingly, um, even uh, with the Muslim ethos is that uh, they were allowed to sell um, heroin uh, because there were poppy fields in abundance in the vicinity of Jalalabad and they would package it up as heroin, uh, sell it, and then uh, they were able to, to make money from that. Um, they weren't necessarily using the heroin, but uh, you know this is the heroin that was making it all the way to the United States. So they were allowed to do that. And so we were at a UN drug eradication uh, house. And then we started to, to get our plan together. And uh, when, we got, uh, when we got permission to go and just do a look-see at Tora Bora, and I don't know if you would call it uh, reconnaissance by fire or you would call it movement to contact, but the idea was is that myself um, and three other counterparts and then some Afghans would push forward or towards Tora Bora to try to get eyes on to figure out, you know, who was there and what was going on. So we really had no intel. We hadn't even really flown over the area with a Predator drone yet or any other uh, any other aircraft to, to try to get an idea of, you know, what was happening in that vicinity. So how did you get there? And, and then, and what's the elevation of Tora Bora too? Well, so the... The mountains are somewhere in the neighborhood of between eight and 11,000 feet. And then, uh, so we had, we had traversed, uh, uh, over those after we got dropped off by vehicle. Huh. So, okay. So you were out, walking. 
Well, we uh, we got we got inserted by vehicle after we made it through a uh, a, a a quote uh, unfriendly checkpoint uh, that was managed by some bad guys. And so at this point, you never quite know who the bad guys are, whether they were Taliban that hadn't give up, whether they were Al Qaeda or whether they were just um, bandits. And so uh, we kind of hid in the back of a truck, made it through the checkpoint, uh, got uh, released uh, out of the vehicle, and then uh, and then proceeded to hump, you know, a military term for throwing the ruck on your back and getting to where you're going uh, into bed down for the first night. And then we ended up uh, staying at a, at a local, um, I don't think warlord is the right term, a local elder. A uh, very colorful man, uh, looked like he was 150 years old, just, you know, beaten by the sun and the sand. Uh, but he was a true gentleman. We had an interpreter uh, who was a Pakistani gentleman that uh, spoke Urdu, uh, Pashto, as well as Arabic. Uh, Arabic. And so uh, we made communication with that family and they host they they um, they hosted us. Um, that's an interesting piece is that you know, I've been all over the world and I've been to uh, many um, Islamic countries prior to September 11th. And one of the things I noticed when we're when we're out and about is that the that the average average person in those countries is very compassionate, um, very friendly. And they are they uh, they've got a, a credo that a, a visitor is a guest and they will do anything, you know, it anything possible to treat them equally and then uh, even uh, to protect them as well. And so once you're a guest in, in somebody's house there, um, they're, uh, they, they become your benefactor as far as food and, and protection. And so we spent the night in the gentleman's house and uh, he told us a story that uh, out in the fields, uh, his, uh, his sheep had gotten uh, uh, slaughtered by, by the bad guys and, and uh, and some bombings from 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 other locations, and so uh, we assured him that uh, part of us being there was to was to make that uh, make that uh, stop happening, so that we can uh, get those bad guys, and that uh, that that he could live freely, you know, without uh, without their subjugation. And so uh, from that point, uh, we set a plan. We knew where we wanted to go. We knew we where we thought. Uh, the the Al Qaeda forces were. We had no idea really what we were walking into, but we just uh, through cover of darkness, uh, you know, we had night vision goggles, and and we just proceeded to move forward. And the Afghans kind of got us into place, uh, but where they were, as far as they were willing to take us, was eight kilometers uh, from the front line. And for us, that eight kilometers is roughly, uh, you know, uh, a mile is. Uh, so eight kilometers is roughly 4.8 miles is what I'm trying to say. So we're roughly five miles from where we need to be. You know, the, we are we are trained and equipped to get right up next to the enemy and then do our business, you know, preferably in the cover of darkness uh, where we, you know, where we excel. And so they wouldn't take us any farther. And we said, well, we have to keep on going. And so they reluctantly continued us forward until we in got a truck. I know uh, we're, we're still on foot. OK, yeah. How big is your team? How many, how many of you is this? So there's four Americans at this point and roughly eight Afghans. Oh, and wow. that got pared down to four Afghans. And so we were a force of eight uh, total with uh, with us leading the way. Um, unsure about, uh, you know, anything about mines, about uh, what we were walking into and walked right up to a, a hornet's nest of activity, uh, troops. Uh, so we... We sat down into what we call an observation post, an OP. Uh, some of your uh, guests might have talked about that previously. And so the idea is kind of a look and listen location. Uh, so you're in a safe location, defensible uh, against uh, attackers. And we started to get a lay of the land. And then the more we looked uh, that night, the more we, we figured out that we were amongst uh, tens, hundreds, and then uh, potentially a thousand uh, troops had bed down on all of these fingers of these mountains in a place called Tora Bora. That was an elaborate cave system as well that uh, I think Newsweek had, uh, had done some um, stories about um, prior to us even getting to um, Afghanistan. The stories were like, this is why the U.S. forces can't succeed because they've had so much time to dig in and this is how well they did against the Soviets and, you know, whatever. So that was uh, that's how we got to Tora Bora in, in short order. Still, uh, still keeping in the back of our mind that at some point here, you know, somebody's going to have to rescue these uh, Christian missionaries. 
but our our, our mission is had changed uh, drastically. <laughs> so, yeah. Joe, at this point, are you wearing multicams? Nope, no, sir. I'm still wearing civilian clothes. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, the Afghans are wearing civilian clothes, uh, so it's uh, myself, uh, my Delta counterpart, uh, a, a CIA counterpart, and then another counterpart. We're all wearing civilian clothes, uh, all wearing, all carrying, you know, foreign weapons and trying to blend in as best we can so that uh, we don't look as, uh, I was definitely whiter uh, than most of our, uh, of our hosts that were, you know, browner in skin just from, you know, being out in the sun more. So you don't have any of the big radios, the big antennas on your back? No, I, I had a, so I, in my rucksack, I had a, what would be called a big radio? at the time so it was a uh and radio that could transmit i could talk to uh the satellites i could talk to the aircraft i could talk to my teammates and then uh, so i had one large radio and then uh one smaller radio okay. that can, the, that has almost the same cap capability but just not as uh, strong in transmission power okay and what about food and water good good question and <laughs> so this is so I'll, I'll take us back a little bit um so at the time we were in the safe house in Jalalabad and the question was posed, hey, can we go forward and do this? We, the U.S. And so the chief of base from the agency asked the question. And at the time, um, the fifth special forces group had shown up as well. Now they're in uniform. They are U.S. forces. They are so they are bound by the Geneva Convention. Um, my group is now bound under intelligence rules, not military rules uh, based on uh uh, what we would call a um, a detail. So we went from Title 10, which is uh, U.S. forces, to Title 50, which is intelligence uh, forces, intelligence assets. And so uh, if we were doing this against a uh, like a, a regular power that had a regular government, uh, then we would, you know, if captured, we would we would be considered spies versus being, you know, you know military soldiers. And so, but for us, uh, considering we're in Afghanistan, a country that really doesn't have a government, um, you know, it just for our, our care and feeding was taken care of by the agency. And so we abided by their rules. So this was an agency led up. They asked the fifth special forces group if they could, if they could do this mission and uh, no disrespect to them, but they said, look, you really don't have enough information. You know, we don't have an idea what we're walking into and, you know, and our job is not to walk in and, and to get, you know, killed. Um, then they looked over at us and asked us, isn't this what you guys do? And we were like, well, yes, we do. And, and he was like, okay, great, go prosecute the mission. So we quickly drew up a fire support plan. And that's when that whole, you know, we proceeded forward by truck and then by foot. Uh, but because we didn't know what we were walking into, all I had was one meal ready to eat. And then uh, one uh, uh, quart Nalgene uh, bottle of water, like one of these, uh, these bottles right here. I don't know if I can, yeah, one of these yeah. Nalgene. That's pretty common. So that's all I had. So I had, um, you know, a quart of water and uh, and one meal. And we thought we were just going to go uh, in in one cover of darkness, uh, see what we saw, and then come back and then figure out what we were going to do from there. What ended up happening was, is as we described the military situation of the enemy, their enemy order of battle, uh, everybody, including the agency at the safe house, as well as their reports back to the White House, Everybody got, everybody got really excited and decided that we needed to start doing the business. And so uh, they said, we want you to commence combat operations. Uh, and so I uh, enacted- And this was just to kill plan. all the people around? Uh, yes. Yeah, that was it. Uh, commence to killing them. And then, uh, and then we'll figure it out as we go. And so we were uh, arrayed against, so we were um, north of the enemy that was pushed between us and the Pakistani border. And that radio um, that I had, so we on satellite communications, uh, I would be able to talk to the AWACS, and AWACS is an airborne warning in uh, in uh, command and control center, and so that's uh, filled with uh, coalition uh, air force folk that are, are whose major mission is to uh, receive the other aircraft, the fighter and bomber aircraft that would be coming in to support us in our mission. And so uh, we we established our position uh, with the AWACS, uh, established our call sign, established what we're what we were about to start to do, and they started to uh, to task order aircraft into us. So you know, initially, I had no idea. You know, if you would have asked me that day 
how long did I think I was going to be out there? I would have said, okay, this evening before they send follow-on forces. And then how long do I think I would do this for? And I'm like, I don't even know, one mission, one hour. And so uh, we received our first uh, fighter aircraft, which was an F-14 from an aircraft carrier somewhere in the Arabian Sea uh, that I'm sure had to in-flight refuel several times just to get to us. So long mission for them. <laughs> Already, you know, a, a, a night for us uh, trying to get in there. And uh, the the closest observation post uh, was uh, three um, Al-Qaeda types that were in a on a hill that was uh, higher than us. And so we didn't like that. And so that was our first mission and then controlled a uh, and controlled a 1000 pound bomb right onto that position, which then, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, that was my first uh, combat operation doing close air support uh, against an adversary. Uh, prior to that, it had just been training, uh, but everything went as trained. You know, we were highly trained as part of those uh, component training cycles and pre-alert cycles and alert cycles. This is something that we did all the time. And so we dropped that first bomb. It was right on target, destroyed that, that enemy observation post. And then uh, over the next uh, uh, roughly 12 hours, we continued to drop bombs from an array of uh, aircraft, Army, or I'm sorry, Air Force and Navy uh, aircraft and, uh, and commenced the destroying those forces in place. Uh, which made it very easy for us because uh, we had night vision and they did not. And so they didn't really have an idea what was happening other than, uh, you know, bombs were raining down on them and very accurately. And so uh, a plane would come in, they would tell me their playtime, meaning, uh, look, I've got, uh, I got about 15 minutes of gas. I got uh, two GBU 10s, uh, which are 2000 pound bomb bombs that are laser guided. Uh, we had laser guided um with laser target designators that could guide those bombs to the target. And then our job is to, is to talk the aircraft into position. So when they release that bomb, it, it has the, it has the physics uh, ability to make it to the target. And so that's, that's partly my responsibility, partly their responsibility. Part of my responsibility is to make sure that friendly fire never occurs. Uh, so fratricide, you know, is a, is a horrible thing uh, way too far away from home, took way too long to get there. Uh, to have a bomb dropped on our position, you know, and then uh, our own bomb being us. And so that's what we're focused on. So on on this one radio, I'm talking to AWACS, I'm talking to the fighters, I'm talking back to the to the safe house. We're, uh, we're basically sending pictures uh, via uh, what was then a rudimentary modem. We would send the pictures back. And then uh, we thought as we approached daylight that uh, we'd be finished. And they said, no, keep on going. So we want you to continue this, and and so we did. I got to jump in here for a minute. All right. Yeah, the, sorry, I've been talking. This is really good. The targets that you're hitting, can you help me understand, are these like small encampments? Are they small villages? About how many people are you destroying with one, one bomb? Uh, great question. So depending on the location, an observation post was just a – enemy observation post was just something that they – uh, had some high ground that they put some rocks around so they could be protected from small arms fire. So that was one example. Another example is a small village where they've made houses out of uh, rocks. They just stacked up rocks like the Flintstones until they got a, a couple of homes uh, made there. And then uh, some of the, for most of them, they uh, would dig a hole into the ground and then put a little piece of uh, of uh, canvas covering over it or some sort of cover so they they, they could stay in the hole and, and be hidden, which would also uh, save them from small arms fire. There was also caves that were there. And so, and then sometimes they would be in the open. Uh, so they would just be laying out on top of the, on top of the dirt and rocks. And that was their little camp. So depending on who they were. And at the time we didn't know exactly who uh, we were dealing with but uh, as as time went on we started to get uh, a better picture of, of exactly who we were fighting so since the war hadn't really started yet what were they doing what was their role were they just guarding their area or or what yes and so that tora bora area is is that was previously like we had talked about where they had fallen back when the soviets had invaded uh-huh well when the americans had crashed through bagram and then crashed into kabul all the Al-Qaeda that didn't get captured and thrown in jail in Kabul had fallen fallen to this location okay. to wait orders from from their leader, who was Osama bin Laden. Okay, Joe, that's good. And so, one, sorry, one more question. 
Sure. Were you, you said the first aircraft was an F-14. Yes. Did you, early on, did you request a specific aircraft? And if you didn't, did you get to the point where you, you requested certain aircraft? Yes. And so every aircraft that would show up, and we had uh, we had F-14s, uh, we had F-18s, we had F-15s, we had F-16s, we had the B-1 bomber, we had the B-52 bomber, and we had the, uh, the MC-130. A little bit later after my mission was when the AC-130, which is the is the workhorse, that's the uh, uh, Jolly Green Giant from Vietnam era fame, where that thing has got a couple of uh, 40 millimeter Bofors cannons, uh, maybe a 25 millimeter Gatling gun or two 20 millimeter Gatling guns, and then a 105 millimeter howitzer cannon on it. And so that, uh, as my mission ended, which we'll get to, then uh, other combat controllers with their units had, uh, had then... As far as we could push, they they had then taken it to the next to the next uh, level there. Uh, but for me, uh, every aircraft would show up with a different mix of uh, armament, and so when they would do their check in, that's when they would tell me, "Look, I've got uh, you know I'm a I'm a B fifty two bomber. I've got forty five Mark eighty twos, which are uh, forty five five hundred pound dumb bombs, uh, but they are deadly accurate with wow. those bombs from from very high altitude." And so they could uh, they could release those. Uh, the B uh, B one bomber uh, would have a joint direct attack munitions. Those were very valuable because uh, they had three fuse types. And so one was air burst. Uh, the version version uh, the versions escape me now, but there was version one, two, and three. One was air burst. One was point detonation, and then one was uh, delayed fuse. And so. If they were dug into the cave, I would use the delayed fuse because that thing would burrow through rock before it exploded. If they were in the open, I would use the air burst to try to get more shrapnel uh, onto them. And then if they were in a vehicle, because they, believe it or not, even though it was high up in the mountains, they did have tanks and uh, and BMPs, their armored personnel carriers. And then so we would use point detonation for that. And so over um, trying to answer your question about how many... And so after you completed each fire mission, and so the aircraft would drop its ordnance. Uh, if they had the legs, they would come back around for a reattack. And then uh, you would thank them and give them a battle damage assessment, which was roughly uh, how many enemy KIA or what other things were killed. Uh, the, the, the enemy had, uh, you know, mules with them. And unfortunately, the mules uh, perished uh, as well because they were just, uh, you know, in proximity. Uh, but they would have vehicles or tanks or the like. And so I would uh, I would you know, wrap up uh, that mission and then they would head out and get, you know, handed back to the AWACS and then back to wherever they came from, whether it was ground-based or uh, or sea-based. And so when it was all said and done, that number was uh, was uh, north of 300 uh, total enemy KIA. Rough rough order of magnitude. It, it really was a hornet's nest of uh, of activity. And, and I will say one thing about them is that on the first day, uh, when we started to crush them, they never, they never fled. They never ran. They, they just stood there and took it like, uh, like they were angry. Like, uh, that was, you know, that, that's what they were supposed to do. And over, uh, uh you know, part of this story is that, uh, we controlled uh, close air support for 65 of the first 72 hours. And those, uh, those, those hours where we weren't controlling close air support, we were either moving or, uh, or refitting and rekitting. And so, uh, honestly, I was there for uh, just over five straight days, never finished that one meal ready to eat, though I did get resupplied uh, with water. And so water was uh, water was an integral piece. What about sleep? Um, I got one hour of sleep in five days. And I will tell you that uh, um, never really got tired. I mean, just the adrenaline was very high. Again, this was right after September 11th. They... Um, you know, we were, we were doing the business. We had found them. We caught them, you know, basically caught them flat footed. And, uh, and the orders from, uh, from higher were do not, you know, do not stop, do not relent, uh, continue driving forward. And so we would clear, um, we would clear an area and then spring forward about a kilometer, roughly six tenths of a mile or so do it again. We did that over four consecutive days before we got, uh, before we got, you know, help. And so we couldn't quit. There was no, uh, we just we just couldn't do it are you 
climbing up and down at this point? Yes. What's the, okay. Yeah. So the idea is that you, you find a good spot where you can't be seen. Now, now the, the odd thing is, is that we did this, you know, roughly over five days. And that meant that we were doing this day and night. And so I thought for sure that, you know, we would do this by night and then we would hide during the day and then restart it the next night. And the orders were, no, you will continue this fight. And, uh, and I, I will tell you some, uh, some interesting things is that, you know, we're talking about December, uh, between eight and 11,000 feet in elevation, it was cold. And the batteries that we had then, which may be the same batteries that the, that the men are using today, but the batteries wouldn't last long. And we didn't have a lot of batteries with us. And I will tell you something, Thad, that my single battery over five days never failed me. I had never seen anything like it in my entire life. Over years of training, I would jump in with the Rangers to season airfield and the battery would be dead like within five minutes. And then we, you know, we all carried them. And so, you know, big batteries, the thing weighed, you know, five pounds, my battery never relented. Wow. I, I don't understand it. Uh, and so odd things like that. I mean, there's several things where I could think of where, you know, I, I, I felt I had, you know, a hedge of protection around me, you know, that, uh, that I was doing was, you know, was, uh, well, I'm not going to, I, I don't know. I just felt like I was well protected. Yeah. All right, Joe. So who all you're being told you can't stop day and night. You got to go. So cannot, why cannot and stop. who all, how high up was this mission going to? So we were being briefed. Uh, so as we're talking back to the, to the safe house, we're, we're being told that this mission is being briefed at the white house. Like the president is in the, in the ready room and they're there. I, I don't know that they could see what's happening, but they, uh, they've got the ability to put our calls on the mic in there. And so we were like, okay, well, there you go. You know, this is uh, this is at the highest level. Uh, previously, we had been given a message about the two Americans uh, that shelter now international Christian missionaries. We had been given a message that said, this is directly from the president, George W. Bush. He said, you are not allowed to just rescue the Americans. You must rescue all eight of them. And we were like, yes, sir. You know, we got that. We understand that. Then we were told that, uh, uh, the White House was monitoring our mission um, for for this, and so we continued the fight. At this point, um, the Fifth Special Forces Group wanted to get engaged, uh, so they were now they understood the uh, the battlefield better. And a uh, combat controller a friend of mine um, named Bill uh, was across the valley from me. Him and the Fifth Special Forces Group came in, and we started to, we split the valley in half. And so I had like the uh, the west side, he had the east side, and then we started to control fires together. And then uh, then relief was coming for me from behind on my side. And then uh, on, a, on or about the fifth day is when we um, finished our business and then we're heading, heading back and then we're relieved by uh, other U.S. forces. One thing that you said in this article on uh, task and purpose mm. is my heart was pounding. I can see yeah. the AQ guys right out in front of us, I cleared them hot and the bomb dropped right in the position. Can you just give us a little glimpse more of some of the thoughts and feelings you had as you're performing your job? Sure. Sure. It's um, so here I am 22 years later. So, you know, most of that stuff I'd forgotten about, you know, and so uh, maybe the bravado flows a little bit better right now uh, than <laughs> then, but the, the, the pressure that, that we're part of an agency team that I'm the I'm the Air Force combat controller. I'm with the with some of the most elite soldiers in the history of warfare. And now it's my turn to do my job. And here we are. And I've been on training missions where they where the aircraft can't can't see what you're what you're lazing. They're dropping bombs way off target. And this one, so I'm I'm pretty nervous. I know that if we miss the first target that there's a chance that they get a radio report out that we're there and that, you know, they could start to look for us. So I'm worried about that. And so uh, I've got a little personal ego going on. I've got a, a, you know, making sure that everything is tight, that the coordinates are good, that there's no chance that there's friendly fire. And so when I um, gave that cleared hot call on that first mission, yes, my heart was pounding. I was like, Oh my goodness, this is it. We are, we are kicking this thing off uh, against the, the people that, uh, tried to, you know, kill 50,000 New Yorkers uh, on 9-11. 
And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, I was amped up. It was very exciting. That uh, F-14 pilot put that bomb right on target. And it was like, okay, everything checks out. We're good to go. And never had an issue uh, from that point on. Did you ever have a feeling of gratitude saying, I am so thankful I'm able to be here now and do this? Yeah, I, it's, there's no doubt. And so, I, you know, when I, I, I talk to, uh, to, to students and, and others uh, about how this works, and, and over my time, at this point, I'm 36 years old, 18 years time in service. They've been training with the most elite forces in the world for, for years that have then they have done uh, missions across the globe. And so you're daily working with people that hold you to account that, that are the best of the best, the best people in the world. You strive so that you can match them every day. And so you're with a smaller group that has better training, more lethality, more capability, more autonomy than any forces in history. And so was very thankful to be amongst them. You know, I was the right guy at the right place at the right time, but any of my peers would have did the same things that I did and, and probably better. I mean, um, you know, the book Alone at Dawn is about my teammate, John Chapman, uh, who gave his life uh, and subsequently received the Medal of Honor uh, later. But uh, that, that man was a was a true stud, a true hero. I mean, a true humanitarian family man. I mean, he wasn't Jesus dad, but I mean, he was uh, he was on he was on the way. He was, uh, he was, he was a good dude. He was an all around good dude. And so, uh, those were the type of people that I was honored to, uh, to have served with. I asked the author of Alone at Dawn or, you know, oh. one of, one of them, you know, Dan Schilling, yeah. I asked him, yeah. so let me, let me read this statement here, uh, about this mission of yours and you, the tonnage more than twice that of the Statue of Liberty still stands as the most dropped by a single CCT or anyone else during an engagement in the history of airborne warfare. And so Dan Schilling said that in his book, Alone at Dawn. I read Alone at Dawn when it, right when it came out several years ago, and I had Dan on the show to talk about it. I don't remember that part. I don't remember him talking about this mission. So mm -hmm. I, I haven't even gone back and checked that yet. But anyway, I emailed Dan last month, and I said, do you, to the best of your knowledge, is that still true? And he said, as far as I know, I think it's true. Still true. Do you think so, Joe? Yeah, it's it's close. When when Dan was writing the book, Alone at Dawn, again, about uh, John Chapman and combat control, he, he asked out, he kind of sent out a, a query. And I said, probably just on the number of, of consecutive days of doing it, it had to be, Will, had to have been probably Will Markham or myself. You know, and so the fact is I had, you know, when we talked about, you know, we had a log book of every aircraft that came through, you know, what they dropped, what the enemy, you know, PA was or equipment. And so that's, you know, that's an artifact. That's a, you know, that's part of my after action report. And so that's where we get that number from. And, and so we pulled the group and just asked around and nobody else, you know, said that they, they dropped uh, anything close to that. And so I think that that could still be a record. I mean, it's so your uh, number is 688,000 pounds. Is yes. that right? Okay. Yeah. In a, in a variety of ordnance and then 20, <laughs> 20 mic, mic gun runs and some other cluster munitions and the like. Yeah. Wow. This is intense. I mean, I am, I, I am just captivated. Uh, what else, Joe, what else do you want to say about it? And then I want to talk a little bit about after the fact too. Sure. So um, what I want to say is uh, there was a couple of, couple of things, you know, I, just the theme of just prior to leaving the safe house in, in Jalalabad, I'm a, I'm a Christian uh, man like yourself, Thad. And uh, I didn't bring a Bible because I knew I was going into Afghanistan and I knew that would probably be an issue. And so I had said a prayer and, and believe it or not, when the, when the fifth special forces group showed up at our safe house, a guy lays his gear down next to mine and pulls out this, this Bible with a tactical cover on it. It's like a camouflage cover. And I said, Hey buddy, you're not going to believe this. But two days ago, I said a prayer that I wish I had a chance to look at a Bible. And he's like, here you go. You know, and I, so I was able to go through and, and, and look at some of my favorite scripture before I left, you know, to try to ground myself, you know, for what was about to occur. So that was a significant, uh, significant moment for me. Um, we uh, kept up the fight as long as we could do it um, before we handed off to other U.S. forces. 
Uh, I got called back to go back to the Pentagon to, to back brief about what we had done. Got asked by a general, you know, why we didn't try harder, why we didn't push harder. And I was like, hey, sir, it was like, you know, four of us against, you know, the Afghans had left us. It was four Americans against. You know, we, we still don't know the total number that we were arrayed against, but every one of those hills was a different nationality. So one was a Yemeni hill, a Saudi hill, an Egyptian hill, a Chechen hill. You know, so each one, so they they stuck with their own folks, and we systematically destroyed as much as we could. Um, following up uh, from us, it, you know, in the book talks about uh, the fact that we got to with one to within one point eight kilometers of Osama bin Laden's transmitter. We had been hitting them so hard to the point where the cave system, the the air ducts that were coming out of the mountain, were spitting fire. So the entire cave was eviscerated in flames. I mean, we were we were pushing them so hard. Uh, and I guess Osama bin Laden, before he departed, uh, transmitted uh, an apology to his forces saying, and I never thought the Americans would come here. You know, I never, uh, I didn't plan for you to die here in a place like this, but uh, I'll catch you on the backside. And then he departed. And then uh, and then we fell back. And, and so that was pretty much the end of my initial uh, foray. Other um, U.S. Forces uh, Navy SEAL team subsequently rescued the Shelter Now International Christian Missionaries. Uh, they were all safe and healthy, and there's uh, combat controllers and pararescuemen on that mission uh, that saved them. And so uh, so that was kind of awesome that that mission happened as well. And so some of my teammates uh, from the 24th that were on that um, with SEAL Team 6. And so that was uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, come to find out, I, I thought for sure we had buried uh, bin Laden in the caves there, but I guess he got out. At least that's what they're telling me or the Navy SEALs are telling me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So um, Joe, this sounds like it was, you were very busy. It was very intense. Was there ever any split seconds or any moments where you kind of thought, huh? Well, my, my wife and kids are home living their life. Uh, comfortable or hey my buddies are back home they're going to work they're playing golf and here i am dropping bombs on our our the united states biggest enemies yeah it, i mean it was simultaneously uh an honor uh that i was that far forward um doing the nation's business you know at the time uh trying to eradicate al-qaeda to the best we could uh so i was honored um later you know absorbing it you know and and What's interesting is I occasionally uh, speak to a leadership uh, uh, vignette at the Air Force Academy for uh, for wrestlers that come for summer camp. And some of these kids are very, um, you know, I have no doubt about the quality of their generation because I see these young men uh, that are that are solid. But they I've been asked a, a question a couple of times, you know, does this did what I did? How do I how do I deal with that from my, my Christian faith point of view? You know, and, and so uh, I, I did. Uh, what I was trained and equipped to do, and it was uh, it was the right thing to do. Uh, I didn't violate any ethos uh, of warfare. Um, you know, did the business to the best of my ability, and then uh, you know, when when I meet my maker, he'll he'll let me know uh, whether I was a good and faithful servant or not. So, um, yeah, that kind of yeah. that kind of rounds rounds my deal out. Uh, you know, everything I had learned in combat control, uh, air traffic control wise, uh, it was we used air traffic control principles to stack aircraft up. At one point I had 22 separate airplanes that were above me. Wow. Uh, and it was, uh, and everybody was, cause at the time there was a, a friendly fire uh, accident that had happened in country. So every aircraft was coming to our call sign and, and they knew the, the, the gravity of the mission and they knew the, uh, uh, you know, the mission was, uh, it was a good one that it was, uh, you know, they would be, be hitting targets, uh, that were very worthwhile. Did you, have you had any guilt at all or regrets? No, you know, I've asked for forgiveness. Um, you know, clearly this is a, a war of the worlds kind of thing. You know, they came to America and, you know, and punched us while we were sleeping. And then, so uh, we just returned the favor. Uh, so I think, you know, um, you know, if I'm again, 22 years later, you know, there's, there's a lot I think about, but I, the things I think about are more of, you know, uh, of my teammates and what they went through. Um, you know, the losses that we have, you know, faced, um, your family, you know, unfortunately being on the end of that as well. And so I am, uh, you know, John Chapman, my teammate, his sister is the co-author of Alone at Dawn. And I see them regularly. And I, 
I see uh, her and I see their mother. And so that's a blessing for me, you know, is that I get to, to get to hang on there. I, I still see my teammates regularly. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, you went to the first Combat Control Foundation event in Odessa, Texas. I went to the second one one year later. We had Rip there, the same the same deal. So it was just I had missed you by a year. You know? I, I got to tell you that that Rip Wheeler man, he uh, he brings a crowd and he brings yes, some he money. <laughs> yeah, he uh, as I recall, he auctioned a shirt from the show for uh, from uh, Yellowstone for for over a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. Oh my. And then gosh. you said I think you were talking about Rowdy Reigns as well. You know, so it was all the same. You know, same uh, customers that were there. You know, yeah. and they were just treated us like aces. And it's uh, it's good for me that I get to hang out with my uh, with my partners from the day uh, that keeps me sane and that keeps me in check and it keeps me accountable. Is there anything, Joe, that's maybe was printed in the article task and purpose or that has been said that that is incorrect that you'd like to you know clarify or, or add to? Well, no, I mean that the. We had decided to do the task and purpose article because we are going to honor the 20th anniversary of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. So me on the front end, you know, and then others still keeping up the fight 20 years later, a career later, you know, guys that had that had joined and 20 years later, here we here we were. And just just as we had um, uh, completed the interview is when the, the administration decided to pull out of Afghanistan. And then so uh, that ended very abruptly. And so the. The article didn't have the same same punch of what we thought it was going to do. So it kind of for me, it's a little awkward. You know, I feel like, I'm, you know, bragging about what I've done. On one hand, I'm thankful because my kids, uh, you know, kind of know what I did, uh, you know, as part of this awesome joint task force. You know, on the other hand, I, I think I've received too much recognition for, you know, a, a mission. Uh, but because um, there's so many so many combat controllers and, and special tactics folks that have that are continuing to do this business and are leading the nation working with the best uh you know best special operations force in the world and will continue to prove their value as we as we you know face new enemies maybe uh you know more first world enemies you know near peer kind of yeah. activities yeah one other question that could just back to the battle joe were there any pilots that questioned you Ever so. Hey, are no. you sure that's clear? You know, no, like as a matter of fact, uh, two real quick stories. Um, the first B-52 bombs, I had never worked with a B-52 in training, and they're dropping the bombs from tens of thousands of feet up, and they're dumb bombs. And I'm like, look, I, I've never even worked with you guys. And so we went from a, you know, we were always taught, you know, abbreviated call, you know, Alpha 1 Bravo. This is Charlie T. Delta over. Yeah, send it. And it's like, hey, you know, fire mission. From, from my position marked by this, you know, this many meters at, uh, at this azimuth kind of thing. Well, at this point, we got into a kind of a phone call. I'm like, hey, you're going to have to convince me that this is the right thing to do because I'm out here. I, I just can't, you know, I can't afford to, to hurt the team or myself. And uh, they were like, hey, you, so the first mission was, uh, you know, some some guys that got into a hill uh, adjacent to us, above us. And, and he was the only thing that I had on station at the time. So I needed him. Uh, because we can't, you know, four of us can't uh, do very well in a, in a gunfight, at least not for long. And so uh, he's like, look, let, let, you know, these numbers are tight. We got it. And so they dropped these bombs and they landed right on target. I'm like, all right, now we're doing business. Right. So they kind of talked me into it and they and they proved their value wow. uh, for close air support versus, you know, strategic bombing. And then the other piece was I had one pilot. Uh, that kept on wanting to overfly our position, which we can't have because if they drop the bomb short, uh, then it could potentially hit us. So they, you know, we have them fly, you know, so we can observe their angle of attack. And uh, I had to, I had to turn them off because uh, it was a danger to us. And so I had to abort that mission. Came around, same thing, and uh, I gave them a return to base. Uh, so they, uh, they, they left, uh, they left their. Uh, base or their uh, their carrier with bombs and they had to return with them yeah, because they couldn't follow you know follow the instructions right. and so i was chided a little bit later on that after the mission was over but uh you know that, you know I was, ground, I was yeah i was the ground forces commander and so i had that i had the authority to make wow. that call so yeah <laughs> i just too far away too far away from home and uh didn't want to you know die by you know yeah. by our own team what else anything else you would like to say joe um yeah, I think uh, think when it was all said and done, we uh, we did it. At the end, I've been asked, um, 
you know, what do I thought, what did I think about the withdrawal? You know, that came up in the article, but then didn't make it because, um, you know, it's just, uh, we were just steamrolled by everything else that was happening there. Um, you know, it's, you know, we're, it, it's hard for me to say that, that the losses that we suffered, which were major because we're such a small force overall. I mean, you're talking about the low number of hundreds of, of these qualified dudes and, and any one of our losses is, is awful. Uh, but in our community, it's, uh, it's exponential. And, you know, was it, was it worth it? You know, did we, did we do the right thing? And, 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 you know, my answer is yes, we are the right team uh, to bring this fight to the bad guys in the beginning. And what happened after that is, you know, well above our pay grades. And, you know, we continued to do that business for two decades. Um, you know, I'm thankful for my, to my brothers. I'm thankful for those that, that learned from what we did and, and made it better and they became more lethal. And now they're using all sorts of other technologies uh, so they could see, you know, the, uh, see the terrain better and make, uh, make better decisions, safer decisions. Uh, you know, so I'll leave that to the politicians. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I miss, I miss our brothers, uh, that aren't with us right now, but, uh, every year, you know, we celebrate them at our reunion and, uh, you know, I, I, thankful to, to have grown up in, in this way because it's, uh, it is, you know, honestly, uh, this brotherhood is, is what keeps me going. You know, it keeps me, keeps me level. Huh. Yeah. This has been incredible. And I keep, there's, there's something else that keeps that I'm very interested in and very few people will be interested in this, but I'm a gear guy and a clothing guy. Five days. You weren't planning on being out that long. We, you said civilian clothing. Will you just tell me what kind of clothing you're actually wearing and shoes? And then did you ever change? Because it sounds like you didn't. Never. Uh, I, <laughs> I never, uh, never went to the bathroom. Um, so, no, the clothing <laughs> never came off. Never took my boots off. That one hour of sleep that I got, I was promptly awakened to say, hey, there's a fighter, you know, checking in. We got it. You know, they have a they have a target they heard about. And so, um the clothing was, uh, was here's an odd thing is that, so we're running around with, uh, you know, high tech fabrics underneath, you know, we, we've got a lot of resources, uh, our Afghan hosts were running around in basically light cotton in, in plastic shoes, you know, and so they, they were having no problem climbing these hills. And so damn sure we, we would never have a problem, you know, climbing those hills either, but just, uh, you know, regular, regular boots. Some guys had Danner boots, some guys had, uh, you know, some type of, type of uh, protect stuff you know i was thankful i had boots because it was chilly and uh you know that i'll send you some uh i'll send you i think the picture of us is in alone at dawn uh at the end of the mission that's the clothes we were wearing yeah nobody ever nobody ever changed clothes okay did you have any cotton yourself cotton socks cotton shirt anything uh no so i, I mean i grew up learning that cotton will kill you yeah. And so the under underlying uh, garments were all like uh, polyprop polypropylene and, you know, at the time, capoline, I think, was the big one. You know, so I had the uh, long john pants on underneath my uh, on my, uh, you know, my jeans. OK. OK. Uh, so interesting. <laughs> this is this is uh, fantastic. Uh, anything else, Joe? No, no. I, I mean, it's uh, like I, I thankful that uh, we got connected, you and I. Definitely would want to invite you out to our reunion. Would love for you to come out to get to get to know you in person. And then you probably bump into a lot of guys that uh, that you've either met through your podcast or in person, you know, uh, rekindle some old friendships there. Uh, you're welcome to come out to Las Vegas. And uh, I'm very impressed with, with what you're doing. Uh, these podcasts are, uh, are exhilarating. I mean, it gets uh, you're. You're doing a variety of of interviews with folks like uh, we were talking about the Medal of Honor, Honor uh, winner from Iwo Jima. I mean, that's so awesome that you got to interview him. He was so humble. Uh, yeah. Tremendous work that he did. Yeah, so it's 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 very nice. I hope it's it soothes your soul to be able to do this um, yeah. as well. And it's oh, yeah. uh, it's an honor for me to have uh, been asked to get on with you in this podcast. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you for being on and for for what you've done to serve our country and to sacrifice so much in your family's sacrifice. And man, I, I just uh, thanks for telling the story and and for for um, I guess being open about it. And I definitely want to get out there. I would love to come this year. I think it's in April. 
It is right at the end of April. Yeah, you'll uh, you and I will continue to communicate, and I'll make sure that you've got the uh, VIP invite. You'll meet hundreds of combat controllers and their peers and families that span all the way back from pre-Vietnam all the way to today's today's. That'd group. be great, so, and you know, yeah. maybe I can get some more interviews too. That if if well, they're willing, yeah, you'd be, you, be an interview factory. <laughs> well, hey, this has been uh, a, a very very fast hour. I really appreciate you being on, and I can't wait to get this released. You know, in a, on a day when. By the way, my my phone is blowing up because of the retirement of Nick Saban, which was announced. Yeah, recording this on uh, January tenth. Yeah, and part of it's one of my brothers, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think his uh, he will not be sleeping tonight. So about anyway, that's what's going well, on glad, over here. I'm glad you continue to do this uh, this <laughs> podcast because I know that's uh, that's a big deal. Yep. Well, thank you, sir. God bless right, you. Dad. Thank you for your for being a warrior for God and country. Well, certainly. God bless you and your family. Thanks for listening to Patriot to the Core. If you enjoyed this one, will you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify? If you'll hit subscribe or follow or that little plus symbol in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you'll automatically see each new episode in the Your Episodes of Your Library section. And one more thing, if you watched on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel and like this video. And feel free to leave a comment too. Oh yeah, and supporting this podcast help support the Mark Forrester Foundation, where we provide college scholarships to high school seniors from Hayleville High School. And when we have enough funds, we donate to other worthy causes, too, that support our military, veterans, and first responders. That's it. Thank you for the support. Until next time.